Practical Truth by Archibald Alexander. He then assured me on the word of a gentleman that if I would read it to him, whatever his opinions might be, he would carefully avoid saying anything that might have a tendency to wound my feelings or give offense in the smallest degree. There was an earnestness in his manner of addressing me which satisfied my mind that he was sincerely desirous to have the scriptures read to him, and the next day was fixed upon for that purpose. It appeared to me that he waited impatiently for the arrival of the appointed hour, for no sooner did the time come than he sent for me. Before we began, I observed to him that, as in the New Testament, he would find the fulfillment of the promises of the Savior. I would point out that those promises as they should occur in reading the Old Testament, which it would be necessary for him to take notice of as we proceeded. Beginning then with the first chapter of Genesis, before we had gone through the chapter, he stopped me to express his admiration of the language. It was sublime, beyond all things that he had ever heard. While I was reading, he was all attention. And when the time arrived, when I was under the necessity of leaving off, it was with great regret that he observed that I had finished, putting me in mind at the same time of my promise to attend to him on the next day. I think it was on the second day of my reading to him that he cried out, What a wretch I am to have spoken against such a book, a book that I knew nothing of, having never given it an attentive perusal. I went on for a few days reading to him according to the plan laid down, which was one hour every day, when the distress of his mind greatly increased. There was now no more said about a second visit to the doctor, no complaints, no murmurings on account of the loss of sight. He now saw the hand of God in the dispensation of his providence, and would acknowledge that it was less, far less than he deserved. My family duty prevented me from being with him as much as I wished. I now called in the aid of some of my religious friends, among whom was Joseph Eastburn, to converse with him and to assist in reading to him. Several religious books were now occasionally read to him, among which were Boston's Fourfold State, Newton's Works, Hervey's Dialogues, and so on. The descriptive parts of the last-mentioned author were at his request passed over, except where it more fully served to explain the doctrines of free grace a subject to him of the deepest interest. Though totally deprived of sight and unaccustomed to go out, he now neglected no opportunity of hearing the word of God, attending the sermons on Sabbath and weekly societies as often as was in his power. As might be expected, his natural disposition, sometimes getting the better of the good resolutions he had formed, would betray him into a fretfulness that was troublesome to his friends and occasioned much uneasiness to himself. On such occasions I have heard him lament deeply over his sinful nature, accusing himself of ingratitude to that God who had mercifully stopped him in his career of vice by depriving him of the light of day and enlightening his darkened mind, and had enabled him to understand the truth contained in his blessed word. I do not recollect how long he stayed with me, but it was something less than a year, when his friends thought it would be best to remove him to the country, and boarding was obtained for him in the neighborhood of the Reverend Dr. Tennant of Abington. Dr. Tennant, in the memoir already quoted, after mentioning some circumstances which have been given in detail in a former page, goes on to say, 
It pleased God by these means to bring him to a very serious and deep impression of his moral character, and to constrain him after some time to attempt to pray. This change was effected in the gentleness, kindness, and tenderness of infinite mercy, and without those horrors which often precede the conversion of high-handed and daring sinners. In his case all was mercy without extraordinary terror. He was embraced in the arms of redeeming love, and delivered from the fiery pit without beholding its awful flame. In his first attempt to supplicate the deity, he was principally affected with a sense of the baseness of his conduct and his vile ingratitude for the mercies bestowed. And this exercise was accompanied with an involuntary flow of tears and a desire to call God his Father, and afterwards to mention the blessed name of Jesus the Savior. Probably this was the beginning of his new birth and the hour of his conversion, which was not long afterwards confirmed by a remarkable vision of two books, with a glorious light shining in the midst of them, as he was lying in his bed, which he apprehended to be the Old and New Testaments of the living God, presenting to and impressing on his mind this sacred declaration, but without a voice, This is a way, and filling his soul at the same time with an inexpressible joy. What is here related is no doubt strictly true, but there is no propriety in calling it a vision, since it can easily be accounted for by a vivid impression on the imagination. A vision is something supernatural seen with the bodily eyes, but this man was totally blind. The object so clearly discerned must then have been from impressions on the imagination. But in saying this, it is not intended to deny that the cause was the Spirit of God. This divine agent can and does produce vivid impressions on the imagination, which have so much the appearance of external realities that many are persuaded that they do see and hear what takes place only in their own minds. In the year 1790, Inglis was removed to Abington and became a boarder in the house of Dr. William Tennant and soon afterwards was admitted to the communion of the church in that place, with which he has walked steadfastly in the face ever since, exemplifying in a striking and a high degree the power of God's grace in the new creation. From the beginning of his turn to God, there was abundant proof that old things had passed away and that all things had become new. Before a blasphemer, but now a worshiper of the true God, before a drunkard and a Sabbath-breaker, unclean, a ridiculer of holy things, and indulging habitually in all ungodliness and wickedness, led captive by the prince of the power of the air, who rules in the children of disobedience, but now freed from his bonds and made by sovereign grace to rejoice in the liberty of the gospel. Before a hater of good men and good things, but now a lover of both. He was made to hunger and thirst after righteousness, after the bread of life, after the knowledge of his will, and seemed only to be happy when he had a glimpse of his glory. For more than a year after his conversion, he could not bear to hear any other book read to him than the Holy Scriptures and the most practical authors on religion. He shunned all political conversation, the reading of newspapers, and whatever might divert his thoughts from holy meditations and a further knowledge of his Redeemer. Whilst residing in his first permanent lodgings in the country, it may not be improper to mention a second remarkable vision which he had. 
Walking in the garden one day, as he usually did for sacred meditation, he was suddenly arrested and overcome with the most affecting view of his Savior, as suspended on the cross and bearing his very sins. In this vision of redeeming love, he was so lost that he knew not where he was. Overwhelmed with unutterable joy and the most affecting gratitude for the discharge of the immense depth which he owed to the justice of a holy God. The impressions then made are still kept in strong remembrance. How long he was in this state he knew not, but was finally conducted to the house. After having called for a guide, full of joy and gladness, a second remarkable proof of his interest in gospel redemption. End quote. We will simply repeat our objection to the use of the word vision to represent what was nothing more than a strong believing view of the scene of the crucifixion, accompanied no doubt with the vivid imagination of the bleeding, dying Savior suffering for his sins. The writer will only add that he has frequently within the term of twenty years heard Inglis say he would not, if it had been within the power of a whoosh, have had his natural sight restored, having found his eyes such an avenue to sin. His whole conduct since his conversion has corresponded with his profession as a Christian disciple. He has, in the view of his brethren where he resides, made a visible growth in grace, even in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has, with others, traveling to the same blessed country, been on the mountain in the valley, an humble, meek, patient, self-denying Christian, rejoicing in the hopes of a better country, weeping on account of his own unfruitfulness, looking for strength to vanquish his enemies, and hoping for victory by the merits of the great Redeemer. Hitherto steadfast may he hold fast unto the end, and may many such be added unto the Lord. Blessed be God for the gift of his Son, for the revelation of his incomprehensible love and grace, and for the crown of glory which is laid up for all who are looking and longing for his second appearance. The foregoing account was written about thirty years ago. An English who was then in years did not depart this life until two or three years since. As Robert Steele has succeeded Dr. Tennant as pastor of the Presbyterian Church at Abington, I requested him to give me notice of the old gentleman's death with an account of his state of mind in his latter days. This he did, and I regret that I have mislaid his letter, so that I cannot at present put my hands on it. But I confess that I was much disappointed in not finding something more memorable in the closing scene of one who had been so manifestly snatched as the brand from the burning. As well as I recollect, still represents that the spirituality and ardour of English religion considerably declined in his later years, that he became somewhat worldly-minded and appeared to be much concerned about his little property, and that he had nothing remarkable in the exercise of his mind while on his deathbed. But no one, I believe, ever doubted the reality of the change which he had experienced, neither was he ever left to do anything to bring discredit on the profession which he had made. It's very important now that the narrator read the footnote given here about this blind man who was converted to Christ. Sometime after the above account was published, Dr. Robert Steele informed the author that, owing to his ignorance of certain circumstances, he had not done justice to Inglis in his own account of his latter days. He has since learned that what he took for penuriousness arose from anxious desire to save as much money from his scanty income as would enable him to liquidate some debts which he had contracted before he was struck with blindness. 
The author feels assured that his readers will be gratified with this explanation, and as it is a gracious promise to such saints as live many years, that they shall bring forth fruit in old age. One reflection which occurred to me on reading Steele's letter was that it is not desirable for a Christian to live to be very old, especially when all active service in the cause of Christ is precluded. Old age is peculiarly unfavorable season for growth and grace. Many of the natural auxiliaries to piety are then removed, and at the same time many infirmities cluster around us, so that a declension in religion is not uncommon in the protracted years of the aged. Another solemn reflection was that a man is never too old nor decrepit to be covetous. Covetousness is peculiarly the vice of the aged, and when indulged strikes its root deeper, the older we grow. What Christ says to all may with emphasis be addressed to the aged. Take heed and beware of covetousness. The writer remembers to have seen and conversed with the old gentleman in the church at Abington soon after Dr. Tennant's death. At that time he was always in his place in the house of God, and attracted attention by his venerable and solemn appearance. It was agreed that his taste and judgment in regard to preaching were uncommonly sound and good, but nothing would pass with him in which Christ was not made conspicuous. Purely evangelical preaching was that in which he delighted, and at that period his conversation was in a strain of warm and pious feeling. My closing remark is that we should despair of the conversion of no one, and we should use all our efforts to prevail on skeptical men to read the Bible. The Bible has converted more infidels than all the books of evidence which exist. The next unique entry by Archibald Alexander is taken from the book Thoughts on Religious Experience, as was the other article. It is called Counsels to Christian Mothers. When I address myself to Christian mothers, I do not mean to intimate that those who cannot with propriety be thus addressed stand in no need of admonition. Alas, that in a Christian country there should be mothers who have nothing of the Spirit of Christ. Young persons often promise themselves that they will attend to religion after they are married and settled in the world. How preposterous is this! It ought rather to be their resolution not to think of entering into a state of involving such weighty responsibilities and the exercise of so many virtues, until they have become the possessors of true religion. Without piety, how is it possible for any woman rightly to fulfill the duties of a wife, and especially of a mother? Some correct views on this subject probably led the legislators of one of the provinces of Holland, as I have read somewhere, to enact a law that whenever any persons applied to be united in marriage, they should produce evidence that they were in the full communion of the church, but this was a dangerous misapplication of a sound principle. Just as in the case of civil rulers, it is exceedingly important that they who are appointed to rule over men should be truly pious, but it is a sad mistake in legislation to make the profession of religion a qualification for office. But while I would not have a law requiring piety as a qualification for entering into the bond of matrimony, I would still insist upon it that no woman destitute of religion is fit to become a wife and mother. Only think of it, an irreligious mother. If it were not so common, the very expression would excite emotions similar to those which we experience when we hear of an irreligious minister of the gospel. I address Christian mothers because from them only can I expect a patient hearing. I address Christian mothers because all mothers ought to be sincere Christians. 
Is there a person on earth whose mind is so perverted by prejudice as not to perceive a congruity between piety and this tender relation? It was formerly a current opinion, even among infidels in Virginia, that religion was an ornament and self-guard to a woman. I knew one distinguished man who had renounced all belief in the Christian religion himself, who encouraged it in his wife, and furnished her with all the necessary means of attending church, and when one of his friends complained to him that his wife was becoming religious, which gave him great concern, he told him that he was a fool, for that nothing was more suitable and desirable than that a wife should be pious. Even infidels are constrained, like the demons of old, to give their testimony in favor of Christ. Many irreligious men desire to obtain wives of genuine piety, and few intelligent men in our country would be pleased with a female infidel. Such a character was so rare in Virginia forty years ago when infidelity abounded among the higher classes of men that when a certain lady was pointed out as the advocate of a deistical opinion, it created a revulsion of feeling in almost every mind. Here I take pleasure in saying that in no class of society anywhere have I found examples of more pure and elevated piety than among the ladies of Virginia, and I have reason to believe that these examples have rather been increased and diminished since I left my native state. It may, in an important sense, be said that the commonwealth has been preserved from utter destruction by the prudence, purity, and piety of Virginian mothers. They have been the salt which has arrested the progress of moral corruption in the mass of society. Accordingly, there is no country in the world, perhaps, where mothers are so much respected by their children and have so great an influence over them. Ask almost any young Virginian where he will look for the brightest examples of moral excellence, and his thoughts will turn at once to the character of pious females, and perhaps to his own mother, if she happens to be pious. I recollect a young gentleman who, although he had an uncommonly pious mother, broke over all the restraints of his education, and became a professed infidel and the advocate of licentiousness in its vilest forms. But a gracious God heard the unceasing prayers of his mother, and by means somewhat unusual he was converted from the error of his ways. In speaking of his former career, which he evidently did with shame and humility, he said, I could get over all arguments in defense of religion, but one, and that I could never obviate, which was a pious example in conversation of my mother. When I had fortified myself against the truth by the aid of Bolingbroke, Hume, and Voltaire, Yet whenever I thought of my mother, I had the secret conviction which nothing could remove that there was a reality in religion. I could soon fill my paper with salutary precepts for mothers, but this is not exactly what is wanted. Knowledge as to maternal duty is widely diffused. The theory of education, as it falls under the direction of mothers, is perhaps sufficiently understood by most. What I aim at is to stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance, or in other words to arouse them to the consideration of the importance of the station which they occupy, and to persuade them to exert their influence which they possess. I have often heard pious females complain that they had little or nothing in their power, and that they felt as if they were almost useless members of society. This is an egregious miscalculation. Their influence is silent and spreads imperceptibly, but it is real and effective. Piety is like light which cannot be hid. The more it seeks concealment and retires from public notice, the more it brightly shines. 
Female influence only ceases or operates unfavorably when women depart from their own proper sphere, or when they endeavor to obtrude themselves upon the notice and admiration of the public. As we are shocked with infidelity in a female, so female ambition is odious. Let the devoted mother exert herself in her own proper sphere, which is in the retirement of the domestic circle, and in constant and devout attendance on the worship of God. Let her look well to the affairs of her household. Let her manifest her benignity and forbearance in the steady government of her children and servants. Let her set an example of order, neatness, industry, and hospitality, and she will have enough to do. Every hour and almost every minute will furnish opportunity for the exercise of some virtue. That eye which goes everywhere will graciously notice and bring to light, too, those acts which are cheerfully and conscientiously performed. A mother cannot be placed in a more interesting field of labor than in the midst of a large circle of children. Here is her appropriate sphere of action. Here she has, here she has work enough to occupy her heart and hands. But some will be ready to think that this is a narrow field in which to labor. They wish to act on a larger scale and do something which will tell on their destinies of men, something more intimately connected with the conversion of the world. Some few women, by the possession of peculiar talents, and by being placed in peculiar circumstances, have been able to accomplish so much that the world has been filled with their fame. Such was the brilliant course of Miss Hannah Moore, who by her benevolent exertions and by her writings became the benefactress of the human race. And such is now the luminous orbit in which Miss Fry moves, and it falls to the lot of very few of either sex to do good on what may be called a national scale. And if all should aim at such achievements, very little would be done. Much the larger part of the female sex must be contented to cultivate the small garden which Providence has committed to them. But as the mothers in ancient Israel were solicitous to bear sons, and hoped that they might enjoy the honor and unspeakable pleasure of giving birth to the promised Messiah, so mothers now may cherish the pleasing hope that of the first fruit of their womb, God will raise up men of renown, eminent ministers, devoted missionaries, distinguished philanthropists, wise statesmen, or even men of humble, exemplary piety and retired life. Hannah waited upon God for her Samuel, and no doubt before the child was born she consecrated him to God from whom she received him. And when she embraced him in her arms and nursed him at her breast, she continually darted up petition for God's blessing upon his own precious gift. And oh, how richly was she rewarded! I have read or heard that someone asked an uncommonly devout woman how it happened that all her children became pious at an age so early. The good woman modestly disclaimed all merit or agency in the affair, but, she said, as many children as I have nursed, I never took one of them to my breast to afford it the necessary nourishment. But at the same time I lifted up my heart in prayer to God for his blessing on the dear little infant. Would not this be a good rule for mothers universally to observe? Who can tell what the effect would be on the next generation? The question is often asked, by whom shall Jacob arise? One answers one thing and one another. But if I may be permitted to give a partial answer, though I believe a true one, I would say by pious mothers. Yes, as a woman had the unspeakable blessing of being the mother of our Lord and Savior, 
So woman collectively shall be the mother of the church. Ten thousand Loises and Eunices will at the same time be training their little Timothys on the knee, and with sweet and persuasive speech, instilling into their opening minds the words of those holy scriptures, which are able to make them wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. A genuine and thorough reformation must commence in the family, which is the foundation of all social institutions, civil and religious. Here is a root which springs, a whole tree with all its spreading and towering branches. And if true religion, to be general, must begin in the domestic circle, to whom will belong the chief agency in the most distinguished honor, undoubtedly to pious mothers. There must be the hands which plant the precious seed. There are the prayers and tears which water the growing plant. There is the kind, seasonable, and well-adapted instructions which distill into the tender, susceptible mind like the gentle rain on the tender grass or the more imperceptible dew upon the thirsty plant. Those are not the most important lectures which are with solemn pomp delivered in the schools, but those which flow sweetly from the affectionate lips of mothers to their docile and interested group of little ones gathered around their knees. No eloquence equals that of a sensible and pious mother, because no impressions made by human speech are so deep and indelible. These lessons, whether she knows it or not, she is engraving on fleshly tablets, from which the inscription can never wholly be obliterated. Impression after impression may be made on the same, but these have the advantage of being first and deepest, and when all the others are gone, these will be left. In visiting a family belonging to my charge in Philadelphia, I observed a very brisk but old woman bringing chips into the house in her apron. I asked the lady of the house whose it was. It is my mother, said she, but she no longer knows me. Upon inquiry, I found that she had forgotten everything except what had occurred in her early life. And though she had left Switzerland when a girl of fourteen, and had not spoken the German language since that time, Yet she now repeats her German prayers aloud every night. It would be difficult to draw a definite line of distinction between a good mother and a good wife. The character of the latter must have an important bearing on that of the former. For a woman to perform her part well when united with a worthy and affectionate husband is comparatively easy, but when a pious woman of refined and susceptible feelings is connected with a man, whose true character and temper have been destroyed by habits of intoxication, when she is treated with brutal tyranny and even cruelty, to preserve equanimity and to perform the duties of an obedient, respectful wife, requires the exercise of much self-denial. Such a situation is one peculiarly painful and trying to a pious mother, but it is one to which many excellent women in our day have been subjected. But the greater the trial the more grace is wanted, and the brighter the character which is enabled with meekness and fortitude to bear up under such a burden. If such a calamity should come on a woman of refined feelings at once, it would be overwhelming. But she is gradually prepared for the worst, and learns to discipline her passions, so as to exhibit no temper unsuitable to her station and the tender relation of a wife. She avoids reproaches, and in her mouth there are no reproofs. Some change in her appearance and occasional spells of bitter weeping when alone will not escape the jealousy eye of a drunkard, 
and it is not improbable that such symptoms of deep distress as these will only serve to provoke his ire and cause him to rage more furiously when under the influence of his inebriating cups. And what can she say to her children as they become capable of observation? She never mentions a subject to them, if it can be avoided, and when necessary, with no remarks which could tend to lessen their respect for an unworthy parent. She conceals from his children the faults and ill-treatment of the father as much as possible. And to all other persons, however intimate their mutual friendship, her lips are sealed. This is a difficulty of patiently bearing this heavy burden, that it must be borne alone in silence, without the usual relief derived from venting our sorrows into the bosom of a faithful, sympathizing friend. I know of no condition in human life free from guilt, which is more deplorable than that of a lady of education, piety, and sensibility, tied to a brutal husband who is seldom in his right mind, or who, though for a season he may refrain, yet has his paroxysms of the worst species of insanity to which our race is subject. This leads me to remark that the very best view which a wife can take of such a case is to consider it a real madness and to feel and act just as if it was the effect of some physical cause. However difficult the practice of duty may be in such circumstances, I've observed not a few examples of such consummate prudence, Christian fortitude, and meek forbearance has excited my admiration. As gold is purified by the fire of the furnace, so it is probable that some woman under the pressure of such afflictions rise to an eminence of piety, to which in other circumstances they never could have attained. But I must not indulge myself in speaking in a strain too laudatory of Christian mothers, some of great weaknesses, the effects of which upon the character and destinies of their children are very unhappy. I recollect to have once been acquainted with a Virginian planter of the best old stamp. He was a rich, hospitable, kind-hearted, and better than all truly pious. When he heard the gospel, his whole soul seemed to be laid open to the impression of the truth, and so susceptible was he that often while the man of God described the love of a Savior, the large and not unmanly tear would trickle down his cheek. He was a man without guile, and you always might know where to find him. But I was grieved and surprised to find that his sons were all profligates. By drinking and gambling and other vices, they soon ruined their reputation, wasted their estates, injured their health, and shortened their lives. In searching for the cause of this wide departure from the example of a good and affectionate father, I trace it to the injudicious indulgence of a fond mother. Not that she wished her sons to become dissipated, but when they did wrong she carefully concealed their conduct from their father, connived at their vices and afforded them facilities of gratifying their corrupt propensities by plentifully supplying them with money. And with such care were their vices concealed from their unsuspecting father, that the first knowledge which he obtained was when his son's ruin was completed and their habits so fixed that all regard to decorum was laid aside and even the displeasure of a father could be braved. Another class of mothers, happily not numerous, injure their children by a discipline too rigorous. They expect by external restraints and confinements to preserve them from temptation. The general principle is good but may be pushed too far. A gradual exposure to such temptations as must be encountered in the world is safe, 
than for a son to be suddenly subjected to the whole influence of the world at once. If children dislike the severity of the discipline under which they are placed, they will be ingenuous in finding opportunities of evading a yoke which they do not like to bear. And when they get free from parental restraint, they will be apt to run to greater excess than others. While sober, consistent piety in mothers has a powerful and lasting effect on children, fanaticism has a contrary tendency. The children of parents who indulge in extravagant expressions of religious feeling, and whose religion comes on in violent paroxysms, are in most cases devoid of reverence for sacred things, and often show a disregard of moral principle. It is exceedingly important in the education and discipline of children not to confound their notions of right and wrong by treating little manners with the same seriousness and severity as great. Our instructions and conduct toward children should be such as to present to their minds virtues and vices according to a just graduation. If we pursue a peccadillo with as much severity as a great crime, the danger is that a great crime will be committed with as little sense of its evil as a fault of the minor class. It is also dangerous to proclaim a crusade against some one vice and magnify its evil beyond all comparison, while other vices equally or more malignant pass unnoticed. So one virtue or duty may be held up so continually and placed in such bold relief that other virtues equally important and valuable are left concealed in the background. As in the Christian character, symmetry or a due proportion of every grace is essential to perfection so in teaching morality, a strict regard should be had to the magnitude and proportion of every part of the system. Let all vice be treated as vice, but let not all vices be treated as equal, so let every virtue occupy its proper place and fill its due space. It is a good rule, even in the government of children, not to legislate too much. Vex them not with trivial and unnecessary rules. Train them to govern themselves as much as possible. That child who is obedient only when the eye of the parent is on it has not been properly managed. Allow children liberty in such things as are innocent, and to which they are inclined by the instinct of nature. It is a poor, short-sighted plan to keep children moping all day over their books. They learn far more that is valuable while sporting in the fields than we can teach them by such a process in the house. It is wonderful how much they learn without effort both of words and things. We may even exceed the mark by inculcating religion upon their tender minds too incessantly. Mothers should watch a favorable moment for instilling religious instruction. One sentence at the favorable moment is better than a long lecture at an unseasonable time. Holiness cannot be rendered pleasing to the natural heart, but religious instruction may be made interesting. Indirect methods of reaching the conscience are often better than the more direct. Occasional remarks not seeming to be intended for them are often noticed and remembered. Especially conversation with respectable strangers in their presence has a wonderful effect. Let your children come early into company that they may hear, that is, if the conversation be edifying. By eliciting remarks on certain subjects from ministers and other respectable persons in the hearing of children, you will be likely to produce greater effect than if the same things were addressed directly to them by their parents. Family slander is an evil against which mothers cannot too sedulously guard. There are families who are extremely cautious about speaking evil of their neighbors out of their own houses. 
but there they feel privileged, and in the presence of their children allow themselves great liberties in traducing the characters of those with whom they are living, ostensibly in the habits of friendly intercourse. This is not only an evil habit and readily contracted by children, but it is the most effectual method of teaching them to play the hypocrite by constantly assuming the appearance of friendship and using the language of kindness when a contrary feeling is habitually cherished. It is impossible to entertain sentiments of true friendship towards those whom we are in the practice of maligning every day. Oh, mothers, guard your children against this common vice so freely indulged and so little censored by many. Akin to this, but less malignant, is a practice of ridiculing the foibles and caricaturing the imperfections or personal defects of our friends. In some whole families there exists a talent for mimicry. They can so exactly imitate the tones, gestures, attitudes, and manners of others that the exercise of this faculty becomes a source of much amusement at the expense of their neighbors especially when the quality or action imitated is a little exaggerated or distorted. This propensity should be carefully and resolutely repressed in young persons. It is very apt to occasion a separation or alienation of affection among friends, for who among us is willing to be laughed at for the entertainment of others? There is no one thing on which mothers should insist more uniformly and peremptorily that their children should tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Lying above all other things may be said to be the vice of children. We go astray from the womb, speaking lies. Children soon learn that others cannot look into their hearts. They will often therefore say what they know is not true, from the confidence that they cannot be detected. Keep a vigilant eye on this manner, and pass not slightly over an offense of this kind. Many worthy parents, I have observed, seem to know little or care little about the habit of fibbing in their children. Manifest by every proper means your utter detestation of lying in all its kinds and degrees. I would also caution mothers against the foolish ambition of trying to make prodigies of their children, and against the vanity of so exaggerating their smart speeches and exploits as to make them appear to be prodigies. I would not be so rigid as to prohibit mothers from speaking of their own dear offspring, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth will speak, but I may advise you not to make your children the everlasting theme of your conversation morning, noon, and night. Rest assured that other people do not take as much interest in the subject as you do. And while I would commend those mothers who are diligent in the instruction of their children, I would respectfully say, be thankful that they are not idiots, nor deformed, nor destitute of the common sense of human nature, but be not anxious that they should be thought prodigies. Children may be so trained as to perform wonders, but what good can come of it? Do we not see pigs trained in the same way? Exercise a salutary discipline towards your children, even with a rod when it is necessary, but let the species of discipline be the last resort and use rather seldom. It is far better than a dark room or starvation or anything which keeps a child a long time in a bad humor. But carefully avoid chastisement in the heat of passion, for this will do your children more harm than good. Keep your children as long as you can in your own house. Domestic feeling is a sacred tie which should be preserved fresh and strong as long as possible. Often mothers lose all their influence over sons by their being sent abroad to school. 
Have as much of your children's education, therefore, conducted at home as is practicable. Be assured that no place is so favorable to the good feelings and morals of the young as a family circle, unless a family be destitute of religion and virtue, and for such I do not now write. Boarding schools for girls may be useful, but I would advise you to keep your daughters at home under your own eye, and when they go to school in the day, let them come home by night. You may possibly find a better school by sending them abroad, but the sacrifice is too great, and the risk of evil habits and evil sentiments is not small. And as to your sons, if they must go abroad, place them in the family of some pious man, and under the maternal care of some pious woman, where they may find a substitute for parental attention. While absent, let them return home as frequently as may be, that what I have called the domestic feeling may be preserved. If your sons must be put to a trade, or become clerks in a store or counting house, be very particular as to the character and conscientious fidelity of their master. It is lamentable to see how youth in these circumstances are neglected, and how they are exposed to temptations from which it is hardly possible they should escape without guilt and contamination. I would earnestly recommend it to mothers to keep up a correspondence by letter with their children when removed from the domestic roof. A single word of admonition and warning from a mother might be the means of reclaiming a beloved son from the verge of a precipice. But whatever else you neglect, omit not to follow your children when absent with your daily prayers. Very often this is the only thing which is left to mothers. Their children are either removed far from them, or, if near, they have lost their influence over them. But there is one who is near to them and who can influence them. O oh, mothers, plead for your dear offspring at the throne of grace. Travel in birth for them a second time. God is gracious. God will regard the fervent, importunate cry of Christian mothers. Bespeak also the prayers of friends. Get them to unite with you in social prayer. This leads me to speak of those societies called maternal associations. If prudently and humbly conducted, they are calculated to be eminently useful. Let all parade and ostentation be avoided, and mothers may meet and pray for their dear children as often as they are disposed. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.